When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we talk bird dogs, double guns, and western upland hunting with Cody Simons. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 253. Welcome back to another episode of the Bird Shop Podcast and a very happy new year to you all. Happy to be with you in another calendar year. Always feels a little bit strange, 2024, and we'll soon be reflecting back on another upland season in the books. I know we're not quite there for everybody. Things are wrapping up here in my neck of the woods. Minnesota is officially closed as of January 1st. Got a little bonus week of rough grouse hunting in Wisconsin that will end this upcoming Sunday, and there might be one more hunt for me before all is said and done, but we shall see. Either way, it was a fun and enjoyable season as always, and a pretty darn good one in the grouse woods as we look back on it. Some strange weather that led to kind of an extended primetime window, some really good conditions leading up to the season, and now as we are flirting with an actual winter, my thoughts are turning towards our lack of snow at this point in the year and kind of hoping that if the temperatures do dip down as i suspect they will we get some snow in a hurry because we really don't have much more than an inch or so if that throughout a lot of the rough grouse country so they'll need it pretty soon hopefully we get it but today we are going to be talking a lot more western upland hunting with just a sprinkle of rough grouse hunting because our guest today did get out on his first few rough grouse hunts this year out west We will talk with Cody Simons shortly. I will just take a minute to thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these conversations coming your way. They are eligible for bonus content, Patreon giveaways, and a little Bird Shop Podcast can cooler and sticker gift pack. You can learn more and sign up for that at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. And with it being January of 2024, shifting gears a little bit, thinking ahead to some of the trade shows and upland gatherings on the horizon and figured i would mention a couple of events that upland gun company will be at we get asked quite a bit if we will be at particular shows as folks are looking to see the guns from rfm in person so a couple of those coming up early in 2024 the first of which being the southeastern wildlife exposition or the seaweed show that is in charleston south carolina I have never been there. Upland Gun Company has never been there, but we are very much looking forward to it. 
will be in the Quail Village along with Onyx and some other exhibitors. That should be a good time coming up in February. So if you're anywhere near the Charleston, South Carolina area, I have heard very good things about that particular show, and we are certainly looking forward to attending that. The second event would be Pheasant Fest in South Dakota this year. I was just chatting yesterday with Ben Bredigan of Onyx Hunt and Matt Davis of Final Rise. Of course, two partners on the Birdshot podcast, but also companies we work very closely with at Upland Gun Company. We are all joining forces this year and putting together a mega booth of sorts at Pheasant Fest in South Dakota, Final Rise, Onyx Hunt, and Upland Gun Company. Very excited for that. I have yet to attend a Pheasant Fest in a South Dakota location, so personally I'm just pretty excited to do that. And of course, it is another new venue new location for Upland Gun Company. So if any of you out there listening were hopeful to get a look at some RFM shotguns at a trade show this year, perhaps those two events are an option for you. Figured I would mention that here. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to us directly at uplandguncompany.com. All right, let's talk Western Wings with Cody Simons of Sitka Gear. Cody and I have been in touch over the past couple of years. Turns out he's been listening to the podcast for quite a while which is cool, and we learned that some of the conversations on this show have fueled his interest in side-by-side shotguns, as they have mine. We'll talk a little bit about those today, along with first bird dogs and upland hunting in the West. There's a second half of this conversation, which you'll hear the following week, where we dive a little bit deeper into the gear side of things, as Cody has a background in that world, technical clothing and such. So stay tuned for that. But for now, let's welcome into the conversation and on to... The Birdshot Podcast in 2024, Cody Simons. All right, buddy. Well, my guest today, Cody Simons on the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining me, buddy. All the way from Montana, right? Yep. Yep. Just outside of Bozeman, Montana. Are you? Did you grow up out west? Uh, I, yeah, I grew up in a oh, farther West than this, uh, in like the Northwest corner of Oregon, kind of like an hour from the coast. Okay. Been in, yep. Been in Montana since uh, 2019. 2019. How'd you, how'd you make the trek there? Was it work related or, uh, upland related? <laughs> what, uh, what uh, was the big draw? Yeah. Hunting, hunting and fishing in school. Um, yeah, I bought, yeah, my, my first dog I bought outside of Great Falls up North. And when I came through, um, just really liked the state and was like, man, I got to find, I was kind of getting out of the Marine Corps at the time and, uh, was okay. like, man, I got to find a way to get out here and found uh, Montana state here in Bozeman and up going to school, uh, here in Bozeman. Okay. Awesome. And so, so first dog, tell me about the first dog that you were heading to Montana to purchase. Yeah. So, uh, Parker is a wired haired pointing Griffon. He was my, the, the first one I got, I've got a couple now, but, um, yeah, I just, um, I knew I wanted a hunting dog and I was into duck hunting a bit at the time, uh, when I was back in Oregon okay. where, where duck hunting was like really good. And, um, so I got a kind of wanted a versatile dog. I knew I wanted to mess around with up one a little bit, I met a guy that had a griff and just kind of like really liked the dog. Um, when I, when I just met the dog at a, a sportsman's warehouse, met the guy and he had his dog. It was really, really cool animal. Like griffs are kind of funny when you look at them, they kind of got like human eyes and stuff. I was like, man, I want one of these. Um, they got do have one. some personality or like just, yeah, character in their face. Yeah. 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 Um, and just really enjoyed it and, uh, found a guy up here in Montana and, uh, just, just came out. I actually just gotten home from a deployment in the Marine Corps and I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to get one and, uh, took the truck out and wandered up there and picked him up. And then it was just kind of, I guess downhill or uphill from there. Just the, the <laughs> dog training stuff. Got some some pigeons and and raised a bunch of bob whites and stuff and just began the the training for the next couple of years. It was a lot of fun and and, and the upland bird hunting and stuff. So that was the beginning of it all. That's cool. So, so if we go back a little bit further, growing up in Oregon, was you mentioned duck hunting? How did how did hunting enter the picture for you? Was that a family affair? Did you find your way into it just independently? How did that come about? Yeah. Um, I have like uncles and stuff that hunted, but I never hunted with them. Never went on like family trips. I got so into hunting had through some awareness about it. Yeah. Like and it was, all, it was a thing, you know, like the town I grew, kind of grew up in like the logging community and, 
everyone okay. hunts and everything. But I, I, I found my way to it through a buddy in like middle school, I guess it was. Um, just in the summer, started shooting his bow. Uh, and I was kind of like left out, wasn't shooting a bow. So I ended up getting a bow through that. And um, he took me on a trip to, to Eastern Oregon and, and started deer hunting and stuff. And then, um, yeah, deer and elk was the main thing that I did. Uh, all through high school and stuff, um, spent a lot of time hunting blacktails and Roosevelt's there in Oregon. Okay. So do you remember the, like sort of the inflection point, maybe it was the dogs, like what sort of piqued your curiosity about bird hunting? Yes. I had gone on a couple of bird hunts, uh, just pheasant hunts, um, with with actually my my mom had like traveled for work uh, a little bit and we ended up in a place in washington that was just loaded with pheasants and ended up on a pheasant hunt there with i think people that she had worked with um and they had a short hair and ran with that dog a little bit and that was a ton of fun but that was pretty early on and then kind of like less the bird hunting thing behind when it was just deer and elk really where i was was like the main good hunting um, yeah, but always like enjoyed, do- always like, grew up with dogs and stuff, but just not hunting dogs. Um, and like wanted my own dog and, uh, was really getting kind of interested in, in bird hunting and stuff. And, um, another buddy ran, his dad had short hairs and stuff. Uh, it kind of got me interested in dogs and he ended up kind of being like the mentor in, in dog training, but, um, just grew up around dogs and just knew I wanted a dog. And then hunting was also like a pretty big part of my life. So made sense to get a hunting dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we've got to talk sort of first dog stuff a little bit. That's, that's a pretty common topic on this podcast, both for myself and and many guests, but so how old is Parker now? He is, I guess, seven. Yeah. Seven years old. Seven. Okay. All right. So no doubt seven, seven years old, you've, you've been through some things, probably some ups and downs, some highs and lows (laughs) as you look back on, those seven years of first dog stuff, like what do you, what do you kind of draw out of that both like sort of how you approach things and then kind of what you learned from the dog over those years? Yeah. Uh, I guess like the first thing that comes to mind is I probably tried to push like training too hard and should have just let him be a dog and a puppy and stuff. Initially, you know, I was trying to like always get to like the next checkbox in dog training or whatever. Um, And probably just went too hard, too fast and didn't let him like develop a lot of just kind of basic bird hunting and bird dog traits and stuff. Uh, initially, I guess, um, probably would have just tried to spend more time in good bird hunting areas too, just with like more birds. Oregon's kind of tough for that, especially on the coast. Like we have quail and some grouse around and stuff, but, um, didn't really have like ready access to wild birds. So we had to drive a couple hours to get into like the Chucker Hills or, or find some good, some good quail spots or pheasants. So I would have put yeah. more effort into just getting him out on, on wild birds and less time with like the backyard training stuff maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And and that's probably, probably good advice for most people just kind of lean on that natural development, but it's, man, that's hard to do. I feel like when you're, I don't know, depending on the kind of person you are, like, <laughs> I'd be curious if you picked up any books or specific training resources, you know, you, you get a hunting dog and you just kind of feel like, well, there's gotta be like some important stuff I've got to be doing. You know, It's not just about just taking yeah. this dog out and letting him run, but in many ways it, it is if you're, if you're running them in the right places. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read a couple, I don't remember what books they were. I remember reading them, uh, on my phone actually when I, I, when I put like my deposit on Parker, I was actually still out of the country uh in the marine corps and i could get phones on like the kindle app or uh, i could get books on like the kindle app on my phone and i read a sure. couple of dog training books and like books about griffs and stuff like that but um i was fortunate to have my friend's dad the one that has the, the short hairs and stuff and was he was pretty involved in like local dog training circles and stuff like that um and he okay. kind of like guided me along with it but I leaned on that a lot more so than like books or, or like online training resource resources or something. I would just kind of like bounce back to him and, and ask him for his, his kind of guidance on like where he, what was up with Parker and what he needed to work on and what he was struggling with and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good resource to have somebody that's even just been through it one time, you know, they can, they can sort of help shed a light on a lot of, questions that you probably have that you can't always get when you know you can't ask the author of the book 
um, those clarifying questions, which sometimes makes that information kind of go in and out. Yeah, no doubt. It, it's like when you said you you went kind of seriously on training, it just sort of reminded me. I know I read like, I mean, between like when a, when a person puts down their deposit and then the time they pick up their first puppy, they, there's probably a lot of books that get read. I, I know I read a few and I, I don't know that that's, you know, necessarily the right thing or the wrong thing. You know, I was trying to build a foundation of information really. And I think it paid off in some ways, but I remember reading this one book. It was called, um, how to speed train your bird dog. I think by Larry Mueller, it was recommended by somebody else. And like, I wouldn't like, I don't remember much from that book. And I, and I don't think it was a bad book, but what I remember is, I I think there was actually a lot of good information in there. But what I, what I remember is he had this like elaborate, like, um, pulley or like zip line set up where he was like pulling things around and just like, just stuff that like to a, to a beginner. And then he was doing these bacon drags where he's like dragging bacon through the grass. So like that kind of stuff, I just remember it put these ideas in my head, like, well, I'm never going to be able to do this. <laughs> like I, I can't, I cannot accomplish this in my backyard with my dog. And none of that stuff was all that important, but it was a, that book's an older book. So it was written from a different time. I just, yeah, it made me laugh thinking about that. That's funny, man. <laughs> maybe maybe that's why Parker's average. I didn't do enough. Uh, I didn't do enough bacon well, drags when he was young. <laughs> that could be. Yeah. Did did you, do you remember doing anything training wise that you look back on now and just be like that? That was just silly. I spent a lot of time doing like duck searches and stuff. Like when we were duck hunting, we'd save ducks, and I'd like drag. I had a field behind my house. It's lucky you could have had a like, sure. little training area, but um, I would like drag ducks, and he would. Yeah, like looking back and I'm like, man, I probably messed that up. Uh, he would point, he, when he would find the duck, he would point it and I'd be like, no, you're supposed to fetch it and like tell him to fetch. And then I was like, later when I got really into Upland, having problems with him, just flushing birds. birds. And I was like, probably because I just spent three months teaching this dog to not point at dead birds, uh, like birds when he found them. Like, yeah, I probably messed that one up, but now I know. <laughs> Best way to learn it, I suppose. It sounds like... Yeah, sounds like first dog stuff to me. <laughs> yep, yep. You don't, oh, you don't really have the, you know, that. I guess that that's sort of it, especially with a first dog. You don't necessarily have a clear vision of the end result if you haven't, you know, been around finished bird dogs or or very seasoned bird dogs. You know, you just hard to picture what that finished result is, and then you don't really know what you're working towards. I, I guess I would say that was that was kind of affected me in many ways. Yeah, no doubt. And like knowing now, yeah, what having seen other people's dogs and then my other dog is, is definitely, um, a little bit sharper of a, of a bird dog. Um, yeah, definitely would help training the next one. So you have two now? Yeah, I have a setter as well. A female setter. Oh, okay. Cool. Yep. Where's the setter out of? She is, uh, a Tacoa mountain dog. So from, from Oregon, okay. actually, um, interestingly enough, uh, I bought her, I don't remember the name of the guy's kennel. Uh, it was a newer trainer, uh, in kind of a weird situation. Also, had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, um, became a dog trainer, uh, or, or was like, you know, aspiring to be a dog trainer and thought that she, he was doing horseback trial stuff and thought that she was like a little too short running. Um, and I picked her up out of Colorado, uh, lot closer to me than Oregon. So I cruised down and picked her up. Um, she was started, she was a year, just over a year, maybe a year and a half when I got her. Um, and she's just been great. I haven't done as much training with her more. So just kind of like keeping her exposed to birds now here. And one of the benefits of living in Montana is I can drive uh, about 10 minutes from my house and there's a little piece of state land that has Huns on it. So I'm just keeping them kind of on birds throughout the like the training season and stuff. Uh, I don't do a yep. whole lot of like heavy training with her. It's more just keeping her exposed to birds, but she's, uh, she's the rock star of the crew right now. That's awesome. How, how old is she now? Like how long have you had her? <clears throat> she is, I guess like three now. Yeah. She'd be three, three and a half. Okay. So a season or two you've, you've been running here now. Yep. I think this is my yeah second season with her. Yeah. And she's, okay. she's falling. She's a little, small dog she's 30 pounds and just rips oh, wow. she's fast yeah okay um, well yeah, i'm, I'm a, smiling because i got a i got a small female setter she's rose is like 36 or 37 pounds so that 
sounds even smaller, but same, very light on her feet and covers ground. Yeah. Yeah. She's fun to hunt with. She's just rips Parker, you know, just typical Griff plays the kind of close range. Uh, and he's the, he's the retriever of the team and <clears throat> she they runs. Can probably ru- run together pretty well with that kind of range setup. Yeah. I, and I run them. I actually kind of am thinking that I, I need to stop doing this so much, but I run them mostly together all the time. Um, okay. just with like my setups of hunting, unless I go on a longer trip where I'm out for several days, I'll, I'll split them up and let them run, uh, independently. But, um, yeah, I run them together most of the time. So she's kind of out on like the hundred to 300 yard range most of the time. And Parker's on the, you know, like from your feet to like 70 yards, maybe (laughs) he's a, he's a close, close working guy, but, um, yeah, they work out together really well. And Parker retrieves way stronger than, uh, than Lucy, the setter does. So, um, they, they work together well. Little setter named Lucy, I like it. What what's got you thinking that you want to kind of break them up a bit? Um, I think Parker has lost all of his his confidence. He when I watch him, I think he's he's not looking for birds much anymore. He's looking for Lucy to back a point. Um, he backs really yeah. consistently. He kind of just naturally started doing it, um, and. If he's near me and he hears the GPS go off, he starts searching for her. Um, and maybe he's thinking about the birds, but I just, when I, when I watch him run and I watch the way he's like looking around, I feel like he's looking for her to be on point somewhere and not really like searching for birds. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I would actually say that my older setter Hartley does that a little bit. Not, I mean, I rarely hunt him and Rose together and maybe that's one reason why, but usually it's, the reason that that is really making my decision is I'm just looking to spread out my dog power and hunt two different yeah. spots and take one dog in each spot. So that's kind of more why I do it. But, um, I have, I've often wondered about this Hartley. He was my first dog and I hunted with my friends when, when he was younger, but I just, I don't know if I did a lot of, um, like the right amount of exposure to running with other dogs, or maybe he just, does that but i've noticed that too like if i run him with some with another dog in certain situations you know he's kind of paying attention to what that other dog is doing and where are they going and is there going to be a point over here which i don't know i find it a little unusual because i haven't i didn't hunt him with other dogs a whole lot but uh, maybe that's just the way he is but yeah i know what you're saying there you they need to have their own independent confidence and if you you can start to notice that if they're paying attention to the other dog or whatever yeah. Yeah. And when, when it was just Parker, when I just had Parker and hunt Montana and stuff, he found and pointed, a, you know, a couple cubbies a day or something, depending on the, the spot and the year and whatnot. But yeah. You've seen it now, change now. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's, it's tough too. Cause she, she runs a lot bigger and she's a lot faster and she's out ahead of him. So she's maybe just finding birds first, but I mean, Parker's only pointed his own w- without backing Lucy. He's only found his own coveys of like Hans or he finds sharp tails that he'll pick up a sharp tail that she misses every once in a while. Um, yeah, but he only fi- has found like a handful of, of coveys on his own this year without her being right there in front of him pointing. So I need to just separate him Cause he, he used to be, you know, be a lot more proficient. I think he's just gotten lazy and it's just looking for her and we do plenty fine with just Lucy pointing him and him backing. So he's like, you know, yeah, right. Why would I search for my own? <laughs> I like, think this it's, is fun. So what he's thinking? Yeah, this is cool. I'll just go pick them up when we're done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting. That's one thing that me not running two dogs a whole lot. I don't have a lot of instances where I see, you know, maybe a dog buzz through an area and then another dog go in there and point a bird. It's like, oh, you missed that one. You know, you can kind of shine a light on some of those things. Yeah. Um, not that it was like a, a mistake or anything, but just there's a lot of ground out there, and you know it's you put oh, yeah. one dog down and you kind of you kind of walk a route through the cover, and you're like, yeah, we pretty much covered it. But I think um, more often than not, there's probably some some hidden nooks and crannies that you know the dog's not covering every every inch of it. Yeah, for sure, Lucy. I'm not sure what it is about sharp tails. I'm curious if other people uh, have seen this with their dogs. Like Lucy does <clears throat> amazing on Hans and and pheasants and um but like sharp tails she sometimes will just run past like right past a sharp tail and like hmm. no birdiness or anything she'll just breeze right past it and then and then parker will find it or i'll flush it or something and i'm like how the heck did we miss that one i swear she ran right past it um 
curious if other people see that because I don't hear other people saying that, but I'm, yeah, I've always yeah, that is. That. It, it, do you notice like any, is it, um, like, have you, have you seen it more recently now that it's December <clears throat> versus September or is it just kind of across the board? No, it's just across the board. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's a little weird. Just on, on Friday, actually we ran, I, I took one of my coworkers out and we hunted and, and she did great. Found, I think we'd found three coveys of huns, locked up on all of them, solid points, um, shot a couple of birds and then she pointed, but was really confused. I could see her. She was across the little coulee and I could see her confused. And she wasn't serious about it. Like if she knows there's birds, she's like dead still. And she was kind of like twitching her tail around and kind of like turned her head as like, oh, she doesn't have birds. So I like called her off of it and she, she came back over to us and then Parker went through and actually flushed the birds. And I was like, there was six sharp tails sitting and she pointed right next to him, uh, good wind and just was like really unsure about it and just left them. She didn't search them out when I called her off the point or anything and just huh. completely missed them and, and walked away from them. Uh, and then Parker went through and ended up finding it. He didn't point them, but um, ended up flushing them up. So yeah, it's it's weird. She just misses them sometimes. Yeah, interesting. Nothing. Uh, I I wouldn't know, but I'd be curious if yeah. any other listeners have experienced that. Um, so you can get sharp tails pointed in December, if I'm understanding that correctly. Yeah, yeah, definitely can. Yeah, it's happened. <laughs> and you could get yeah. you can get somewhat somewhat close to them. Yeah, they do get, man, they get jumpy sometimes. Uh, yeah. But yes, some, in the right spot. I mean, if they can, I think a lot of it is just like geography of how, where, where they happen to be sitting and where you're hunting and if they can see you, man, they're sure, out sure. of there. But yeah. Um, yeah, we do more so in November. We, we don't have a ton of them like near where I am. Um, we get okay. some occasionally, but uh, when I head like north or northeast or east, we, we find a ton of them when we're, looking for hounds and stuff and yeah they can be pointed and, and can be shot in december but it does get tough they get a little jumpy and the shots get a little farther yeah from everything i've i've heard i mean they they definitely that bird changes quite a bit from the bird that i know that i've been hunting in september which makes sense because the september <clears> stuff i mean it's really enjoyable we've talked about it a bunch on the show it's but it i it is somewhat predictable like they're just the that sort of those young birds and um, it ends up setting up really well for pointing dogs, but I've, I guess I've been out on the prairie in November. I went to South Dakota one time and saw some of the big flocks, uh, the biggest flock of sharptail I've ever seen coming down and landing in a, in a sunflower field. It was like, looked up and guy I was with, was like, those are sharptails. I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, the sky was <laughs> full of them. It's like, wow. Yeah. Those really? are sharptails. I've never seen a group that big, but yeah, they, they tend yeah. to group up and get warier from from everything i've heard i i was curious what what you're so it sounds like you're chasing huns quite a bit um what other opportunity have you guys been having the same kind of unusually warmer snow or snow free ish uh late season as we have what's it been like over there yeah it's been yeah been an odd year we've had like middle of october conditions since the middle of october so it's uh it's been odd okay. in in that sense yeah it, it's nice for bird hunting um kind of curious what next year is going to bring if we're going to have kind of drought conditions worse than normal with no snowpack or something like that but um yeah sure. we have gotten in a lot of bird hunting in spots where we normally wouldn't because the snow would usually be stacked up pretty deep um it's been a yeah like i said been great for bird hunting but it's been an odd year um november when i'm out like mule deer hunting is usually a really cold game and it was like 50 degrees in the middle of the days in the middle of November when I was hunting mule deer and stuff. So been a, yeah. been a different year, no doubt. Yep. Yeah. Very, very similar here, which, which again, we've talked about a bit, but uh, just un, kind of unusual. And yeah, that's maybe the biggest thing is I, I mean, I certainly appreciate the, what feels like a lot of bonus <clears throat> walks in areas that uh, I normally wouldn't even be thinking about going into this time of year. So I've got some extra exploration and scouting, which will, which will pay dividends in future years. That's been fun. Um, and man, yeah. I mean, it's like it, the last 24 hours felt like actually winter. We have a dusting of snow and it was below 20 degrees yesterday, but now it's, it's 21.2 here now, and it's going to get up over 30 today. And then it honestly looks like we've got thirties through, 
basically the new year, which kind of takes us through our rough grouse season. I mean, if we get through this whole season with almost no snow and 30 degree temps, I, I don't know that I ever remember a year like that. It's pretty wild. Yeah, this is definitely the the lightest winter we've had since I've lived in Montana. There's no doubt. Um, it's been nice because I've been uh, mountain grouse hunting a lot more, hunting duskies and stuff. Yeah, normally the mount, you know, normally people are skiing and ski touring around on the trails and stuff outside of town here, and <laughs> I can I can walk up on dry ground and and find find birds. Yeah, I saw. I was well. Actually, I was going to ask. Um, hopefully, that coworker wasn't the wasn't the spark for you to put up the Instagram story about the golden rule of hunting <laughs> no it wasn't no this was a, a buddy of mine <laughs> okay good um, no he's a he's a pretty experienced hunter just new to the upland world so we it was, it was fun we got to go out and get first first hunt for sharp tail shot a bunch of quail that's stuff. cool he's, he's from from texas uh, but uh okay. yeah i got to go and he got to see some good we we walked out and got good good dog work and everything it was kind of later in the day and i usually hunt in the mornings more so but i wasn't sure how it's going to go gonna go but um turned out to be a, a good day moved a, a handful of covey i guess three or four coveys of hans and then that one good shoot one good group of uh sharp tails so got to shoot hans and sharp tails for the for the first time so it was a it was a good trip and it was like a, just a couple hours after work on friday so it worked out awesome it's been a pretty good yeah. season for hans out there from I, I mean i experienced it a little bit back in september but from the sounds of it uh the hunt numbers were pretty good this year yeah it's been it's been an awesome year um a lot of the spots that I hunt locally, um, that normally I'd find a covey or two or maybe three. I found like earlier in the season, we'd find like six or eight or something on a, you know, a three or four mile walk. So it's been a, <clears throat> a really good year in the time I've spent, uh, like out Northeast or Northeast of where I live. Anyhow, not like necessarily Northeast Montana. I've just been great. Like every walk I've gone on, I went on a, a longer trip earlier this year and every walk we went on, we found a couple of coveys of Huns and a bunch of sharp tails and found, I don't, I don't spend a ton of time on pheasants, so I don't have like a real good read on how many there normally are, but found a bunch of birds, yeah. uh, in some new spots, but man, it's, yeah, it's been a, an awesome year of bird hunting, no doubt. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. How much does, or how 
and or how much does the does the hun hunting change throughout the season like we talk about the sharp tails kind of being you know maybe a little bit easier to approach in september but they get warier and they group up that kind of thing does anything similar to that happen with huns or they kind of move into different areas obviously the cover and crops change a little bit but how does that progress yeah the season i definitely don't see like that big of a difference like you'd see with with other birds but um a lot of what I noticed and just like what determines where I hunt is dependent on like the weather and then geography of where they'll be within the weather. So if it's like real cold and windy, it's kind of obvious where they'll be. They'll be, you know, out of the wind, uh, somewhere that's a little bit maybe heavier cover and just has, has geography blocking the wind. Um, they definitely do get jumpier. Cause I like one of the spots I keep mentioning, um, if it has like a lot of like little bigger valleys that I wouldn't necessarily call like a coulee, but they're maybe like 200 yards across and um, they'll get into the spots. Like if it's snowy and the sun's kind of burnt some of the snow off and there's like open grass, they'll see you, they'll be out feeding in those or something and, and they'll see you from a couple hundred yards away and fly off. But where maybe you wouldn't get that in earlier season. I, I also usually don't hunt in like September. So <clears throat> it's kind of hard to say like from, from early, early season to late season, um, like what the are you just doing other but, stuff or is it just too hot heat that kind of thing or yeah it's archery elk hunting mostly yeah um, okay yep just just doing other big game hunts and stuff earlier sure. in the year and it, it kind of works out too because I, I let the weather kind of cool down and stuff and parker overheats if it's like 40 degrees so he's a yeah he's a cold weather animal but um yeah spend spend september usually archery hunting or something um that makes i'll sense. get out in some mornings and do like some mountain grouse hunts and stuff like that but yeah, as far as huns go, like I don't see like a huge shift in where they are. They like still generally seem to be in the same place. Um, they might just be like tucked in a little bit in like a little bit different geography and a little different cover to stay out of the wind and and to stay warm. Yeah. So, all right, transitioning from huns, first first rough grouse, not that long ago, what was it, a couple weeks yep. ago. Yeah, uh, two two weekends ago, I guess. <clears throat> talk me through yeah. it man you went you went out after them you must have seen them before but you uh you decided this was the year yeah we'd been after them and i hear them a lot when i'm bear hunting in the spring or just hiking in the spring i hear them hear them drumming and whatnot <clears throat> okay and that's um, cool. yeah so kind of had an idea of where some of them might be but we don't have like i guess the mountain range near me doesn't really have like great cover for it but um i <clears throat> knew some would be around and spent a lot of time looking for uh, duskies and stuff and would kind of walk through the what I thought was going to be rough rough grouse covers and kind of just got me more interested in it. Um, started hunting a spot that like the roads kind of closed down uh, December 1st here. So I went into a spot that the roads were still open to lead me into the mountains. Um, it was a weird day and I feel like I would have shot birds that day, but I happened to choose like the day that everyone was getting their Christmas trees and out in montana i know how it works uh where you are but in montana you buy a tag essentially from the forest service for like a couple bucks and you just go out into the mountains and cut down a christmas tree well like i didn't know people took took it that serious and they were going to be like more than a couple hundred yards from the trail the trailhead um and there were people everywhere all in the mountains getting christmas trees so i didn't want to (laughs) shoot we ended up moving we ended up moving i think five birds that day one morning and i didn't I was uncomfortable about there being so many people and, and also just didn't get shots. Jeez. The nature of how they fly. Um, so that day, that was my first real day of like finding rough grouse. Um, moved, well, I guess what, what we would call a bunch of birds. I don't know if that's a bunch of birds or <laughs> like Michigan or whatnot, but um, found a bunch of birds that day. Didn't shoot at any. And I was like, I'm going to come back one morning before work when there's nobody out here. Um, went yeah. back, had a couple of really good points on birds. And one of them, I saw it on the ground. I was like, I am surely going to get this bird. I have a feeling it's going to fly right downhill. It's open. It flies straight away. So like on like the contour of the mountain um, and like happened to get behind the one tree that was like taller than I was. And I couldn't see it. I was like, dang, I thought that was my chance. <laughs> um, I was like, I'm going to give these ones a break. I'm going to go somewhere new headed out to another this was the next weekend headed out to another range that i spend a lot of time like mule deer and elk hunting in and um got away found like 
a, a bigger area that I thought might have birds. Like previously I was kind of hunting, it's like a little small spot and it was like a mile or so. And then it, it, you're kind of out of cover and had to go back. Um, so I found a bigger, a bigger area where I could kind of wander a little bit more and there wouldn't be anybody around. Got out. Um, I'll actually tell you about the second one. Cause the first one was kind of lame. I feel kind of, feel kind of <laughs> dumb about shooting the, the shooting the first one. Um, but the second one I had gone way up, started low, hunted for rough grouse, went way up, climbed, I, I think like 1400 feet. I was looking for, for duskies and I was just going to go until I found them and then come back down. Well, I went dang near to the top of the mountain. I didn't find them. So I came back down. Um, Lucy went on point. I got a, a notification that she was on point. It was in just like little furs, like eight to 10 foot tall fur. So you can't see anything. Yeah. So I'm kind of like working my way through, um, uh, looking for her and it says she might i'm like looking at my gps and says she's like 30 feet away and i'm like i don't see her i put the gps back in my pocket and i'm like poking around and i get another notification that she's on point now it says 40 yards and i'm like oh, what the heck she must be like chasing something that's odd for her usually she wouldn't break and go after something but i work my way to her again and i find her and i see her in like another little patch of like christmas tree dug furs and she's staring straight up in the air and i was like what the heck and yeah. I'm looking and there's a bird like maybe eight or nine feet up in a tree and she's just staring at the bird. Um, and this will probably sound pretty, pretty weird, pretty foreign for like what, what I understand is normal rough grouse behavior, but I couldn't get the bird to fly out of the tree. And it was only like a, you know, a couple feet above my head. Um, and it was, there's not much openings, but I'm like, I could give it a try. So I like grabbed onto a little branch of the, christmas tree it was sitting in and i like tugged on it to like wiggle the tree and it wouldn't fly and i was like okay i thought that was gonna definitely work. <laughs> and it didn't fly and it's just sitting there i was like well i'm not gonna like shoot the thing at like you know a couple feet out of the tree like that's terrible i'm not gonna back up and shoot it out of the tree um right and i'm like well i can pretty much reach it with my barrel uh so i've got my, <laughs> my 30 inch barrel 28 gauge and i was like well i can just poke it and i reach out with my gun and <clears throat> bumped the bird with the end of my gun and it flew off and it flushed luckily the direction I wanted it to and flushed out a little ways and, and shot it. Uh, and that was the one that I sent you the picture of that had the, the really nice, like black collar and all that really pretty bird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like super weird situation. Um, yeah, I, I was telling Levi day about it and he's like, what in the world? Like I've never heard anything like that. I'm like, that's how a rough grouse acts. Um, yeah, it was a little odd. I didn't, I didn't expect it. <clears throat> that would be the situation of, of killing the first one, uh, or I guess the second one, but, uh, it was cool. It was, it was fun. I, I put a fair amount of time into chasing them. Um, and was, was stoked that I actually found one. Cause it, I don't think there's a ton of them around in Montana. Um, I hear them here and there, but not like a, a mess of them by any means. So it was yeah. cool to get one. Well, that right there is maybe the number one reason why you've got to have 30-inch barrels on a grouse gun, Cody, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> for poking rough grouse out of trees in Montana. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, if you believe everything you hear, the rough grouse is a, the further east you go, the rough grouse is a warrior and warrier bird, and the further west you go, they, and or north, I guess, into Canada, they become a little bit less um, like that. I mean, I see oh, plenty yeah. of birds hop up into trees in Minnesota and from time to time that, you know, they will not flush. I mean, they'll, they'll definitely sit up in a tree and there's depending on sort of how you're feeling that day, there's an art to going about how to getting the bird to flush out of a tree and still trying to get an opportunity on it. If you care to take those shots, I more and more, I don't really like shooting at them when they're coming out of trees just cause I don't know, it's a difficult shot and I don't, I don't like winging birds or anything like that. So sometimes I don't even shoot them yeah. anymore. But um, yeah, that's usually if you bump the tree, in my experience, that's going to get the bird to go. So to actually have yeah. to. Now, I I have had it happen where, you know, you're throwing sticks and, and that kind of stuff. But you never know. They're just, they're they're goofy like that sometimes. And they don't. Clearly that one didn't want to didn't want to take off yeah. in that area but <laughs> yeah the first one i shot that morning flushed from a snowball off of a tree branch that's how i got that one to fly lucy again oh. one in a tree <laughs> and i was i was throwing snowballs at it to try and get it out of the tree um yeah it finally did yeah. um but yeah not the most sporting thing i've ever done i guess <laughs> 
Yeah, I was well, just really excited. You know, it was like, I was like, there's a rough grouse, and it's just sitting there. I was like, I have right. to. I'm not going to shoot it off the limb. I have to get it to flush. And I, I was probably 20 snowballs in before I finally got close enough to to get it to fly off. But I mean, that's like you know that just like affirms the stuff you know like how underwhelming you you've got this treasure troves of books and literature and the rough grouse is built up into this magnificent bird which it is don't get me wrong but then yeah. cody's first bird he's got to throw a snowball at it, to get yeah, it the exactly and the second one i had to bump with my gun barrel yeah <laughs> uh, they, it was cool i was surprised not off to a great start in in your book <laughs> yeah yeah no i was still excited about it i thought they were uh i was envisioning a lot larger bird like something similar to like a a blue grouse like a dusky or something and sure. duskies are really big and i don't know i was just thinking like oh, those are the grouse i hunt these grouse will be big too um i was surprised at the size of them i thought they were bigger bigger bird but i swear i just talked to somebody recently that was telling me i can't remember who it was or where it was but they were they were telling me that they were hunting rough grouse i think and they were like surprised at how big the bird was and for some reason i because thought it was a western hunter but um maybe i'm just maybe i maybe i dreamt that up i have i have no idea but certainly my understanding yeah they're definitely smaller than a than a blue grouse dusky grouse yeah um that i mean i've never had my hands on one of those but yeah a big blue is a is a pretty hefty bird like they're yeah they look smaller because they don't have the you know the long tail of a pheasant or whatever but um like i would say like weight of like meat wise uh they're very similar to like a, a big rooster. A yeah. Blue grouse I, they're kind of, I, I really want to do a blue grouse hunt. And I've talked to folks about kind of doing that in September when it's, you know, it's a little cooler up where the mm-hmm. blues are. Um, I don't yeah. know when, when, I, when would be likely for me to do it, but I really would like to, I'd like to see and, and get a chance to bag one of those birds. They're a lot of fun, man. And you will, uh, most likely not see anybody else doing it. I run into yeah. like two other people, uh, in the, the couple years that I've, I've been around Montana and kind of poked around a little bit, took it more serious this year. Um, and I saw two guys, which was like kind of abnormal. One of them's like a local legend mountain grouse hunter. And the other guy was like a, a dude from New York, just looking for grouse. He'd moved huh. to Montana, but wanted to grouse hunt still. Um, but they're a lot of fun. So how did you get the, so you're hunting grouse now. How did you get this into side-by-sides? You get the bug for side-by-side shotguns. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that and I was trying to track it back. Um, I've always really liked over-unders, like just double barrel guns. I thought were really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember being younger thinking that side-by-sides were kind of goofy and just like old school guns and liked a little bit more like modern, uh, over-unders and stuff. But I guess when I started like searching for my first side by side was one of the early, earlier project Upland podcasts that you must have done with like Greg Elliott or something on vintage American oh, yeah. guns. And, um, yep. I remember him mentioning there was like a portion of it where it was like getting into them for cheap or something or like the, the affordable ones. And it was like Parker Trojan sure. or Sterling Worth or something. Um, and I was like, I'm going to start looking for these. And like Parker's were kind of hard to obtain. Um, obviously I was interested on how Parker got his name. Um, and then, Ah, but I found a Sterling worth. Yeah. A a 16 gauge Sterling worth. Um, it was like a little bit goofy of a gun. It had like a big beaver tail for him, but it was like in my price range. And I just knew I, I like wanted one. I thought it was cool looking and I got it. Um, but yeah, I think initially it was that one of those podcasts where someone was mentioning like budget American side by sides. And I was like, you know, 20 something years old, early twenties didn't have like the yeah. most spare money to go around um, and found a Sterling worth for like a couple hundred bucks on uh, guns international and, and bought that one and then just kind <laughs> of stayed awesome. with it. And it was a stayed with it from there. Too, though. Yeah, it was, it was a good deal. Yeah. Um, looking back on it, it okay. was a good deal. I think people maybe right. avoided it. Cause like the beaver tail looked maybe kind of goofy and like it kind sure. of more so resembled like a, a, one of the later like B models. Yeah. B model. Yeah. When it became savage. Um, yeah. So I think maybe people just overlooked it thinking it was like a B model, but yeah, it was a, it's a Sterling worth 16 gauge, 28, 28, eight inch barrels, like moderately short. I think it was like thir- like 13 and three quarters or something, but I put a little bit of a pad on it. Um, and it fits sure. me, fits me pretty decent now. Um, yeah, that was the beginning of it all. 
of the side-by-side stuff. And now that's primarily what I shoot. I still shoot my over-under a little bit here and there. Mostly if I have to shoot non-toxic somewhere. Um, okay, sure. On like a, uh, like we have waterfowl production areas where you have to shoot non-tox shot. Um, and there's hunt, or mostly pheasants and sharp tails and stuff around on those areas. So I'll, I'll carry my 12 gauge, my over-under for that. But um, yeah, mostly just the side-by-sides now. Yeah. Yeah, and you're uh, you're starting. You've got a little collection started. I know, like, I don't know when we started chatting. It was a while ago. Um, certainly before we we built your RFM. But yeah. the I remember I remember you as the guy that stumbled into the <clears throat> a fox shotgun that I would love to own. <laughs> tell me about yeah. that one if you care to yeah. uh, if you care to tell that story. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, people seem to be interested in it, and people don't believe it. And, but oh, by yeah. the way, I did just see a picture of that beautiful gun and a dusky grouse on your Instagram recently. Oh, yeah. That was, um, I was drooling over that. So very yeah. nice photo. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was just in downtown Bozeman. We have, uh, there's a store called Schnee's that's, uh, they make boots and they also have like a consignment oh, yeah. area of the store. Oh, um, that they have guns and they, they like, interestingly enough, maintain like a pretty cool inventory of old guns. Um, usually like maybe 10, old side-by-sides or something but they're side-by-sides to look at so we were downtown it was actually i think maybe new year's or the day before new year's and we had just gotten back from a christmas trip and my girlfriend was um like returning something at a store downtown and we just walked by she's like let's just pop in here and take a look like i like to comb through the guns and check stuff out and i was looking at it and the, and the tag said like fox sterling worth and i was like looking at it like, well, this clearly isn't a sterling worth like i don't know a lot but it's got like, engraving this isn't a it has engraving on all over the receiver and on the barrels. And I was like, well, it's definitely not a Sterling worth it. It has engraving on the barrels. Um, and I was kind of looking at it and I was taking pictures of it and I was like, Google on the serial number. And I just like, finally at, it's like a bunch of young kids. And I was like, do you mind if I take this gun apart? And they were kind of like, uh, I guess, um, and took it apart and it has the, you know, bees stamped on the action. And I was like, man, I think this is a B grade. Um, and I'm looking at it and I like took some photos and like couldn't quite figure it out and it was like loose the action was loose and stuff but like overall in pretty good shape um and just like got to looking at it online a little bit and i was like i am like 95 percent sure that this is a b grade and they have it marked as a sterling worth and i asked the kid i was like how do you guys uh like assess the value of these guns and like we have a local or we have a guy like that works here and he he knows most stuff or he can like research his way to most things i was like okay interesting like is there any like bartering <laughs> with these prices? And he's like, yeah, we could call the owner if you really wanted to. And I'm like looking at the price. I was like, no, it's fine. Like, um, I'll, <laughs> I'm, I would like to buy this thing. And he's like, okay, cool. Um, and it'll be in a weird situation. Which should have been a red flag for him, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, a, re- like, not a red flag, guy? but it should have been yeah. antenna up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm looking at it and yeah, I ended up buying the gun and it was marked for $750. Um, so I'm like, even if it is a sterling worth, like it's really not that bad of a price for a 16 gauge sterling worth. Um, but it's clearly not. And it's stamped with B's and the serial numbers line up to be like a 1913, um, B grade box. Um, yeah, ended up buying it and the kid like hands me the receipt and hands me the gun. I was like, is everything finished here? Like, do I legally, like, is this mine now? And he's like, yeah. (laughs) I was like, can I tell you something about this gun? And he's like, yeah, is it worth a lot more than it is? And I was like, yeah, man, like this is a really pretty, like not oh rare, but gosh. like, I was like, it's not a very common gun. And this is like another 20 year old yeah. guy that I'm talking to. And he's like, you know, we went back and forth about this. And like, I was just Googling pictures of Sterling Worth, And I was telling the guy that I didn't think it was a Sterling Worth, but he was like set on the fact that it was a Sterling Worth. I was like, yeah, it's a oh B grade, man. Like gosh. this is, this gun's worth a lot more than $750. Like even in the current state <laughs> it is, it needs to be rejoined and stuff. Um, yeah, paid a, we have a local gunsmith da- in downtown Bozeman, actually just a few doors down, and had it uh, rejoin and put back on face and stuff, and <clears throat> then carried it around since. So I'm like just well, over one a stop shop for you. You pop in, grab a yeah. grab a Fox B grade, bring it down to you. Brought it to was it Charlie of Rod and Hill, right? Yep, yep. Okay, or no Hill and Rod. What's his shop called? Uh, yeah, Hill, Hill Rod and Gun. Yep, that's him. Hill Rod and Gun. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I don't. I don't um, know him, but um, I've looked at his. Um, he has a maintains a website and has a really nice selection of sort of side by English, typically English guns. Although he has yep. other stuff. 
um, for that are kind of like that would appeal to most bird hunters. Um, so lots of uh, lots of shotgun candy on his website. Yeah, no doubt. And he's um, yeah, he's always got a really interesting inventory of guns. Yeah, mo- mostly English stuff, but has some American guns from time to time, um, and has been very fair for random gunsmithing work <laughs> that I brought him lately. But um, yeah, so the the B grade is incredible. all operational, and I. <laughs> It's a little two and a half inch chamber and I, I reload for rifles and stuff. And it's like, I'll get into reloading because now I have two old 16s. So I'll, I'll get into reloading to make my 16 gauge ammo a little bit more available. So I load up some little uh, two and a half inch. They're essentially like a a, a 20 gauge load. They're like a, a little seven, eight ounce, very low pressure, okay. um, low velocity. I think they pan out to being like 1125 feet a second is what I chronographed them at. So real light little loads that I shoot. I shoot the 16s a fair amount. I enjoy, enjoy carrying those guns and it's right at like, yeah, the B grades like six, just under six and a half pounds. So it's like not a heavy gun by any means. It's a fun one, fun one to carry. Yeah, and it's, that's you know, awesome. I find myself just like looking at it a lot too. It's kind of fun to have something to look at. It's cool when you're tromping around. Oh man. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful. I, I don't, I don't admittedly know, much about the fox shotguns once you kind of go you got sterling worth and then you go a grade and then they obviously get rare and rare i don't really know what mm-hmm. i don't think there's a whole lot that separates when you go to like b c i don't know if there's a d there's an x grade like i think yeah. it's mainly just engraving once you kind of go beyond uh, beyond that point they're higher finish levels and stuff but yeah the fox right me they always had that barrel engraving and that just you just don't really see that very often um always love that about them i i still there's a place in my safe for a fox a grade or higher i would be happy with an a grade i really want yeah. to find an a grade with a broken stock because yeah i want i want to have del whitman or somebody build me a do a custom stock vintage like american 16 or 20 gauge i mean i'd be i'd be perfectly happy with a 16 but I haven't really been looking that hard recently. I've obviously got other guns to keep me busy, but I still would like to like to find something like that. That's a that's a steal, man. Yeah, no doubt. And A A grades don't seem to be a whole lot different than B grades. B grades are kind of a weird one. From what I understand, there wasn't a whole lot of them. And it was kind of like a weird gap between like an A grade was like the gun that a guy would buy if he wanted a nicer gun, but wasn't going to spend a ton of money on one. And then if they didn't yeah. buy an A grade, they would buy like a C or a higher. And the B grade was just kind of like this odd gun that there's not a lot Almost of information like out there on them. Yeah, you don't see them around a whole lot, but it wasn't like one of those. Do you have the Fox book that Mac- Michael McIntosh wrote? I don't. I need to get it though. I've been. I have like a couple books on the list that I need to grab that are you know pertain to shotgun shooting and, and American guns and stuff. And I need to. I need to pick them up because I'd like to read it and just know a little bit more about it. Like I know, I guess a decent amount about like Sterling worse and a B grade now as I've like researched through it. But um, yeah, I don't know all of it by any means. Yeah. I'm just, I, uh, it's been a while since I read that, but I, when I was drinking the Fox (laughs) Kool-Aid, which, which I still do from time to time. I mean, I love those guns. I I bought that book and read it and we talked about it on the podcast plenty at, at that time, but I, there's gotta be some stuff in there on, on the B grade. Cause that's a pretty much, uh, extensive history on, on those Fox shotguns. So I'm sure there's right. stuff that you would find in there. Interesting. So you did, you were able to su- successfully go back and sort of confirm that that serial number was in fact a B grade. Cause you run into some stuff from time to time where like people upgrade, you know, take a sterling worth and yeah. make it look like a B grade or something, but it sounds like you tracked it down. Yep, I did actually before I bought it, um, and I'd actually messaged Greg on Greg Elliott on okay. Instagram. I was like, "Hey yep. man, can you like help me confirm what I'm looking at here? Like, I think this is a B grade, but it's marked <laughs> as a Sterling Worth." And he's like, "Maybe it's a Sterling Worth that someone engraved to look or you know made it look yep. like a an A grade or a, a B grade or something." Um, but just got to, luckily the like Fox Collectors Association has a pretty detailed record of what a gun yep. was by serial number, and it was like very off if it was a Sterling Worth. The, the the serial number like wouldn't have is wouldn't have existed as a sterling worth um, gotcha, and it was like yeah. clearly a b grade of a certain uh, date range um so yeah it, it worked out i'm excited about that one i when i first thought yeah. it, I was like, i'm just gonna i'm gonna make this thing operable and get this thing rejoined and i'm gonna sell it and then i like 
looked at it for a few weeks and then like shot it. And <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not selling this thing. I'm keeping this. I'm never going to spend the money to buy one of these again. So it's like, I'm going to go ahead and just keep this one. Yeah. Good for, I mean, it would have been, yeah, you, I'm sure you could have flipped it, but, uh, I, I don't think you'll regret hanging on to that one. No, no. I, and there's not a lot. Is of that a 28 around, inch so. barrel gun? It is. Yep. Yep. Both. Okay. Oh, I guess all of them now. And I have that LC Smith now that I've been digging with. I don't know if you've seen that project going but, yes um, i i saw that oh, beautiful beautiful looking gun yeah that was a fun one too i picked that one up it's actually sitting right next to me i picked that up <clears throat> just as a, a project i kind of like wanted to mess with some i don't know if you call it gunsmithing or like some a little bit of like not restoration i feel like that's also the wrong term but it's kind of like freshening up an old gun i guess and uh yeah 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 picked it up on gun broker and made a project out of it and that one's been fun too and that's a 28 inch 20 what did you i recall um i remember seeing like i actually forgot about that until you mentioned it now but yeah you were working on that like what did you do to it Uh, yeah so it was the forend was broken pretty bad when i got it so like you couldn't you could assemble it with the forend that's right that's right okay Um, yeah but like a big like wedge of wood was broken off the bottom of the forend from where like the forend iron screws attach the iron to the wood and it just broke like a big triangle of, of wood off the bottom of the forend. So like you could assemble it with just the iron, but um, it was just really badly oil soaked and a bunch of cracks um, in like the wrist and all around the locks, like the side locks and stuff like normal LC Smith stuff, I guess. Uh, now that I got to research in a little bit. Um, sure. And then when I disassembled it, like every one of the four, like, um, I don't know what you call them exactly. The four pieces of wood that go out around the locks and like the top and bottom tang and stuff. Um, internally, all four of them were broken. Or I guess three of the four oh, were broken. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, just a bunch of like wood almost like the, the skeleton of wood around the around the locks and up near the head yeah, of the stock. And it's very thin. Yeah, it's it's all very yeah. thin wood, and it was I guess it's pretty normal for them to break. But um, yeah, three of the four were broken, so a lot of it was just woodwork. Um, gluing that back up <clears throat> and then um glass bedded the action and all of the like like all of the act where the action meets the wood to just try and get like a better fit to it so it doesn't have any pressure points and build any more cracks over time um and then just like some weird stuff with screws being stripped out and replacing screws and stuff like that and then just uh yeah getting getting rid of all the oil to fix it all was kind of a bigger I guess like one of the main things of it, it was like the head of the stock was like black with oil. Um, so acetone soaked it and stuff, got all the oil out of it and then did all the work to fix it. And, uh, and then just re refinish a little bit, put a butt pad on it. Like one of those, um, I think the Connecticut shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a silver's like repo from Connecticut shotgun uh, manufacturing company. Yeah. So it's cool. And I carried it around on, uh, on Sunday, actually my first day with it and shot a hunt. Um, so it works and, uh, fires and everything and all was safe and uh shot a bird with it so i'm excited about it yeah i just um i wanted to look at the I saw the picture you put up yeah okay yep you got the big silvers pad on there and yep beautiful photo with some prairie grass in the back and a late yep. season hun hanging on the fence post buddy <laughs> love yep. it yeah yeah definitely <laughs> where'd you, uh, where'd you learn how to do all that handy stuff uh I, I, used, I mean, my dad, my dad's a tradesman, so he was okay. always fixing stuff and dinking around with things, but, um, wood shop, took so a lot of wood shop in high skilled. school and a lot of, yeah, a lot of yeah. metal shop in, uh, in high school as much as I could. And, um, I, my, my brother owns like a mechanic shop, so grew up working on Jeeps and, and building Jeeps okay. and things, uh, old CJ fives and stuff like that. So just kind of grew up messing with stuff. Yeah, that's really neat. Well, breathing breathing life into uh into an American classic. That's that's neat. Yeah, people are bugging me to to do another one, I guess. People seem to really enjoy <laughs> the the project on. I didn't think people were going to care all that much. I didn't know how many people liked uh old guns in general that know me on social media and uh yeah, right. people have been <laughs> bugging me to buy another one, but uh the the old gun funds are low after buying this one. And, I had to buy a bunch of tools to do all the work too. So I spent almost as much on tools as I did on the gun. Well, now you're invested though. Yeah. Now the next one will be cheaper. Yep. See, economies of scale. Yep. Love it. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.